everyone to our inaugural episode of The Book Cult, where we take a deep dive into one of the books that has really piqued our interest over the last couple of months. September was a bit of a bonanza month, wasn't it, Cushy? I mean, there were so many great books that came out, but one that really piqued our interest was The Space Between by Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald, who might be better known for um, their very, very popular award-winning podcast, Shameless. Um, through this book, they talk about sort of life in your 20s, which I feel like is some a gap that I'm surprised no one else really identified early on. Um, it's a collection of various essays, and I think you and I literally rushed out to the bookstore as soon as it was available. I think it was like on the first day of September or whatever it was, um, just so we could devour this. And so in summary, it's divided into four um, parts. There's part one, love, part two, ambition, part three, mind and body, and part four is voice. And I think by dividing in that way, it's sort of, um, there's a little bit of something for everyone. Um, There's some level of relatability, even though, you know, we transcend all various cultural um, and age divides and stuff like that. But there was, I don't know, I just felt like there was something there. So take it away, Kushi. What were your thoughts about this book? Yeah, I mean, in short, I loved it. Um, Like you said, at the outset, Michelle and Zara are very quick to say that, you know, they're writing about their 20s from the perspective of two, you know, cisgendered, like, able-bodied, privileged white women. Um, But sort of notwithstanding all of that, um, I do think that there is something for most, if not all people, reading this book And I think it is because it is just so all-encompassing and they cover just so many different facets of what life is like in your 20s. Um, So I think the way we thought we'd actually sort of um, digest this book is by sort of just picking and choosing some of our favourite chapters across the different parts. Um, So starting with love, um, the chapter that I chose was one of Zara's chapters and it was called The Space Between Heartbreak and Healing. Um, I think it was one of the first chapters in the book, if memory serves me right. Um, yes. I thought of you when I saw this chapter. Um, <laughs> it was the first chapter I read after I devoured another um, part, but I, I just thought so much of you. I felt really hopeful when I read it but perhaps you can explain a bit further and then I'll tack in the bit where I started feeling really like hopeful. Yeah so I mean I think like many if not most of our listeners um, I have experienced what I would describe as probably like a really cataclysmic type of heartbreak in my 20s. Um, So I've alluded to it in past episodes but when I was 27 Wow. Yeah, 27, so three years ago, um, I moved interstate um, in part for a job, but also in part for a relationship. And that relationship ended. And I've more or less spent the better part of three years working through that heartbreak. So um, I think what I really liked about this chapter was the fact that I think Sarah does a really great job in just capturing sort of how visceral heartbreak is. Um, Like she touches on things like, you know, that heaviness that sits on your chest or those late nights that you spend, you know, replaying or ruminating various aspects of the relationship and the breakup. Um, And in that way, I guess, just really affirming and validating what it's like to go through such an experience. And I think it's your friend who has heard you um, articulate sort of the desperate loneliness and those real, um, the depths of pain, I guess. I don't think it's it's exaggerating for me to say that. I mean, like we've, we're pretty close and, and throughout, especially COVID, like I've heard a lot about you describe it, um, the heartbreak and the pain and the ongoing pain. It's like as if you've lost a limb and it's kind of like a phantom limb pain that you continue to feel throughout um, your experience. And I saw, yeah, I think she painted such a more um, a vivid picture, like you kind of provided mm-hmm. that framework and then reading her experience and the way that she described it, it was so vivid that for Mm. someone like me who hasn't um fortunately hadn't gone through something quite 
like soul crushing essentially. Mm. Um, it was you know, really valuable, I guess, for, for me to understand and to be empathetic to friends who have gone through that. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's strange because, I mean, you know, I feel like heartbreak is generally like canvassed everywhere in certain ways. Like, you know, you see it in TV shows, in movies, you hear about it on podcasts or like in songs. And so even though on the one hand, you know that in large part, it is this sort of really universal phenomenon that a lot of people experience, um, when you're in the depths of it, you literally feel like you're the only one that's going through it. Like it's strange for something so universal to feel so isolating at the same time. Um, And sort of reading this chapter just was that really helpful reminder that you are not alone in feeling this and in thinking this. And I think the hope that you touched on earlier is also a really important part of the reason that I wanted to speak about this chapter because Um, She's on the other side of this heartbreak Um, and, you know, she's now in a very, like, happy, healthy and fulfilling relationship and she's able to kind of have the benefit of hindsight to see why exactly those past heartbreaks were so important in terms of getting to be the person that she is today and to be able to sort of experience the relationship that she has today. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to just read a really quick excerpt of um, to illustrate what I meant and how... like from my perspective as a friend supporting um, a very close friend who is going through something so horrible, um, why I kind of clung on to this bit. Mm. So she writes, that battered heart of yours will find a way to mend that much I know now. Those sleepless nights, those waves of shock, those indiscriminate floods of loneliness will eventually disappear and that bruised chest will piece itself back together even if it looks a little different. And when it does, you will look at the space between who you were at your first heartbreak and who you are now and marvel at how it was you and only you who managed to fill your own void. And I think... I love um, that so much. (laughs) Me too. It actually makes me want to cry. And I just want to say in a very public forum that (laughs) um, I do think, um, you know, having seen you navigate your heartbreak um, I've seen how you pieced yourself back together again. Like mm. in this book, she's uh, in this essay, she sort of charts how at the beginning of a heartbreak, it's that devastating low. It's kind of like the ground zero where you are trying to rise from this rubble and the rubble is all encompassing and really just pressing on the ability of anything to sprout from amongst the rubble. But piece by piece, you know, piece of rubble by piece of rubble I guess um you know you start to grow and develop back from that and I think that's the same with you like you've done so much work and so much therapy and so much self-development within yourself that I think you even mentioned that um you feel like you're a bit more back to being yourself and I Mm -hmm. think that bit where she says even if it looks a bit different like you are going to be completely changed like your DNA is going to be altered by the process of having your heart broken but it doesn't mean that you're not going to be you You, you're going to be Mm. a different version of you maybe for the better it's almost like you're growing into yourself like you Mm. know I feel like now the person that I am today is the person that I always was but that I sort of needed to go through this sort of life-altering experience in order to come to that realization Completely, because I feel like if you were just coasting along and you don't have these challenges, there's nothing to shape you really almost. Yeah, it's like a lot of formidable experiences in life, right? And a lot of your personal growth tends to come from the most traumatic experiences that you endure. So this is just one of those. That's right. And, yeah, I, I thought it was a beautiful essay too. Like, you know, I haven't gone through a huge heartbreak like Zara or you have, but even I found it relatable. And that's the thing about these girls. They had a like this entire book of essays somehow managed to find its way to weasel in and be relatable in some way, even if it's not something you personally experienced or had a lived experience of, you know, a friend who's had it or another, um, like, you know, someone female in your life has probably gone through what they've described. 
I guess on the other end of the spectrum, I wanted to talk about um, the chapter about settling, which um, is quite different to your chapter about heartbreak because, um, and it's reflective of our very different experiences. Like I've been in a relationship for 12 years now, um, 12 and a half years, which is a really freaking long time. And I just want to touch on it very briefly because, um, you know, there's not much exposition, I think, to go on about this. But in this chapter, they talk about um, the question of settling, which is something that anyone who's been in a long-term relationship would have had at some point, which is, is the grass greener on the other side? And I'm sure you would have had some elements of that, especially when, um, you know, a lot of your partner's political views might differ from yours or they're not passionate about the same things as you. Um, and it's something I've definitely thought about for a really long time because it's like how much is it you're settling or versus, um, you know, the fact that you just do need to accommodate that person's um, differences in order for you to have a practical relationship because as we've talked about um, whenever we talk about dating these days, it's hard out there and, like, I think a lot of the time um, single women who we've talked to, it's been a question of are we are our standards too high? Like there's that element of like questioning us, is it us? Is that the reason? And so I think there's just so many different things to think about um, in that sense. But um, Zara McDonald in this, in this email exchange um, with Michelle, she's written um, – Good love, I've since learned, is more than wanting to love them. Good love doesn't make you question if you're settling or if it's enough. It is big enough to speak and stand for itself, and so the questions never come. Or in your mind, is that too wildly simplistic? And I was really happy that Michelle pushed back on that because I think it is too simplistic to say that good love doesn't make you question whether or not you're settling because... I think it is possible to hold the two views at the same time, like to be in good in what you call a good love, but to also assess those um, the structures in, in your relationship and to evaluate that because when you're with someone for so long, you're meant to be growing together and inevitably you're going to start sort of doing things a bit differently and having to constantly reevaluate and reassess. And I think it is a bit simplistic to just cut people off if they're not meeting that mold. Like if you start thinking that am I settling automatically means that this love is not worth investing in. I think that's a bit simplistic. Like, yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I feel like Zara's conception of love is the sort of love that's packaged and sold to us in like TV shows and movies that when you do meet your significant other that you know, you'll have this like sudden realization that you're, they're your soulmate and, you know, you'll go off into the sunset together. Um, But like you said, I feel like relationships are sort of an ongoing negotiation, right? Like where you're constantly trying to figure out whether the challenges in that relationship are sort of challenges in relation to your core values or whether they're challenges in relation to like your personal preferences. Because, Obviously, if there's a disagreement when it comes to core values, I think that is something that is definitely worth sort of reassessing, like, the relationship about, you know. If it's the case that I'm with someone and I find out that they're racist or sexist, something that I find to be, like, the antithesis of my core values, I'm going to find it really hard to sustain that relationship. Um, But if it's simply the case that, you know, I love law and politics and they love art and music, Um, that's something that personally I can see myself navigating because it would be preferential that they would have the interests I have, but at the same time, it wouldn't be so crucial that it would like compromise on the relationship. So I, I agree. I feel like we've had so many of these arguments in the last year, like during COVID, especially about what the line is. Mm. Um, And what are the, it's, you know, deal breakers, like what are the deal breaker things? And like we've, you've just said then, a lot of it does relate to values and integrity. Um, I don't, and do you reckon that's universal across the board? Like, do you think everyone holds values in the same way that maybe we do? 
I think everyone has deal breakers, but I think the point of difference is what we actually decide to be those deal breakers, right? Like for some people, maybe they can see themselves being with someone that doesn't share their like political, um, you know, leanings. Whereas for other people, that's something that's just a prerequisite to a successful relationship. And I think that's why we sort of keep having these conversations because we keep having to sort of redraw the lines and figure out what is a deal breaker and what is not. Um, And I think, yeah, like you said, like earlier on in the year during, you know, the first iteration of lockdown, I think Nick and you were really sort of facing this um, in a really significant way in terms of figuring out, you know, and I won't go into too much detail because it's not my place to do that. But um, yeah, essentially figuring out whether your ideas around, you know, family and career and a future together um, are those issues that you can actually navigate and negotiate or are those areas that, you know, you are steadfast in your views and you won't compromise. Yeah. And Absolutely, and you were there for the ride of that. And I, I can firsthand say those are really tricky conversations to have and kind of in our course of talking through that and having informal conversations with our friends, a lot of people, you know, because they're such big-ticket items that mm. they, people just actively avoid having them, and with good reason because it opens like a freaking crazy can of worms. Um, but going back to, I guess, this essay, um, it touches exactly with what Michelle responded to with that, which is she's saying that doubts might pop up, not because the relationship is doomed, but because you're human. Good love might not always feel good, especially when life is thrown off course. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so true because there's so many things that can happen in life that can challenge you, like, for instance, infertility or careers mm-hmm. or death things like that and so and people react very differently and so I do think it's just a a matter of I'm still like trying to sort of redefine the lines about what is settling because Mm. I guess like we pumped ourselves up so much that we and we're at the tail end of our 20s um you you've turned 30 this year where you do actually take less shit as you grow older like there is less room to move but there's always that creeping doubt, which is like, have I set my expectations at an unreasonably high stake? Mm-hmm. Mm. H- how do you navigate that um, sort of tension then in terms of making the compromises that are necessary for the relationship, but then not compromising on who you are as a person and like the values that you hold? I've been wondering that for like the entire time that Nick and I have been together though, because mm-hmm. like as other people might also know, like we have very radically different approaches to like work and career and ambition um, that are quite at odds. And I've asked myself that question a number of times, which is, is this something that is integral? Mm. And sadly, it ultimately is just a balancing act between, you know, the love and the commitment that you have for each other versus how, like how much of this is something that's, that's a deal breaker for you personally and balancing those two together. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not a straightforward question. I think it really depends on the person as well, because for mm-hmm. some people, like you said, having a partner who's not ambitious could be a deal breaker or having a partner who doesn't um, take their career very seriously is a deal breaker. And part of me thinks that maybe if we were dating, like if I was dating someone now, I would be quite different because, you know, I met Nick when I was in high school and so there's a lot of history and a lot of time that we've had to um, develop and shape each other and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. I, I I do wonder, like, I think I'd be a bit more ruthless these days because of the reasons I said, which is we're more, we're more confident in ourselves than we were in our 20s. Um, mm-hmm. We are career women now and we kind of know what we want and don't want to have to deal with, like, you know, the bullshit or being someone's mother as well, which is another sort of common thing that crops up every now and then um, Mm -hmm. in the dating scene. And I think that to me personally, having to mother someone would be the ultimate settling because, like, that's not my job. (laughs) No, that's not what a relationship is. (laughs) Not a parent and child dynamic, you know. More of a partnership dynamic is what we're striving for, I think. 
I wanted to turn to the ambition chapter. So mm-hmm. when I got this book, the first chapter I flicked to was that because I wanted to read the tea about working at Mamma Mia because that's how I knew these two girls because I used to be obsessed with that website and I had heard that they had a very crazy work culture mm-hmm. um, and I do think like in 2010 when I was like young and dumb um, I really wanted to work for Mamma Mia even though I'm not a journalist <laughs> I've never been trained to be a journalist I just no I judgment, thought it was such yeah. a cool <laughs> I thought it was a cool place to work it was like a startup and I had like really cool colors and people got to wear Gorman to work every morning and so um it was my dream job but what this chap this um a number of essays but this I'll call it this part of the book has revealed is that it seems like it was a very very toxic workplace to work in um my first essay I flicked to was The Space Between What I Thought My First Job Would Be and How Toxic It Was by Zara. That's the one I picked too. <laughs> oh, yes. I loved it. I love it so much because there was so much to unpick out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, firstly, I want to say I think there is this generational trope amongst Gen Xs and baby boomers that millennials are fucking lazy. And I want to say, no, you have a read through this book. You look at these girls' careers and millennials are not lazy at all because we're in an overly casualized workforce. We have no job security and hence no, um, they call it loyalty. I don't think I owe my employer anything because, again, the job security thing is a major issue. We've got people um, our age and younger now who are so desperate to get experience that they're working unpaid internships and, um, you know, doing all these things. Like, remember, there used to be this law firm that was notorious um, for hiring law um, students to do paralegal work for free and they lit- the firm literally survived off free labour. Like, oh my gosh! And because everyone's so desperate, right? Mm. Um, so I'll just read an excerpt of a bit that I just so agree with. But Zara writes: Young people in the workplace are constantly told to be grateful for the work we're offered, that a good job is a privilege, not a right. And while that idea certainly rings true, a good job is a privilege. A safe, healthy workplace is not. The frequency with which we're told to be thankful for our own employment status creates a culture in which no one knows how to say no or where saying no is akin to feeling like you will fall behind. Cannot agree with that more. What are your especially, thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with that more and especially sort of the industry in which we work because, you know, there are far more law graduates than there are law jobs And I think there is this impression both amongst employees and employers that if you aren't the kind of person that says yes to everything, that someone else can just, you know, quickly come and take your place. Um, And so it does kind of lead to this real diminishing of standards, I think, in terms of what we will tolerate in a workplace. I feel like I was having a conversation with you about this, about work hours and how um, people will just willingly take on more work hours. Like, for instance, for two, three years now, I've been acting um, like, you know, I'm employed as like a junior solicitor in the scheme of things, but I've often been acting up because I just don't really take my time very seriously. Like, I'm just like happy to help in whatever way it is. And um, we'll do that even if it means sometimes like staying a bit later because like I don't have responsibilities to go back to. But then um, someone actually said to me recently, there were um, someone high up was saying that by doing that, I'm actually diminishing the labor Mm -hmm. um, workforce because I'm making it acceptable so that those who people who are um, not as privileged as me in terms of having the time and the space to do it actually um, like uh, I'm eroding their rights essentially by doing that. And that was the first time I ever thought like, holy shit, because like, you know, I don't mind when it's just like kind of focused on me and how it's impacting Mm. my life. And and the most I thought was what I miss out on a gym class because I'm staying a bit later to do something that needs to be done. But having that sort of wider perspective about how um, if we 
keep chipping away at this, we're chipping away at these rights that have been wrought by, you know, the 40-hour work week, Mm. um, very big industrial relations rights. And so that was my sort of... (laughs) I agree with that to a point. Um, Like, I, I understand the point that's being made. I guess where I would diverge is sort of putting the onus on us as employees to undo what are just really systemic and structural issues in a workplace. Like, yeah. I mean, like I accept that, you know, I don't have to agree to work overtime. Um, but I think the bigger issue is why am I being asked to work overtime in the first place? Mm. Because especially in the line of work that I do, and I've had this discussion with you before, um, if I don't work overtime on occasion, that potentially means that I'm not putting enough preparation into a matter, like, for example, like being a criminal lawyer, um, I commonly do bail applications for clients. And so it's all well and good for a manager to tell me, oh, you know, make sure that you don't work longer than 5 p.m. But if I'm working in such a way that I'm not able to reach that task until 5 p.m. and then I make the decision not to work past 5 p.m., that means I'm not adequately prepared for that matter and that will actually have a really negative impact on potentially someone's liberties. Um I completely agree with that. I I don't, yeah, you're completely right. It's not fair that it's being put on us. And it's it's in this essay, you know, the Mm. fact that this media company relies on like very young 20-something-year-old slave labour to Mm. keep functioning. It's the same as what you're saying because, like, come on, workplaces are not naive. Like, they hire Mm. us because they know we're passionate about our work and that we are hard workers. We're type A personality people. Like, mm-hmm. we're going to work to get the work done. Like, there's never been a time where, um, you know, they've been like, knock off at 5 o'clock and if I had something that had to be done, that mm-hmm. I didn't stay back and just do it. And I actually feel like the opposite of, like, um, the uh, – so w- when I stay back to work on something late because I feel like I have to, I actually feel like, oh, my God, I'm going to get in trouble for being – like online so late and sending these emails because they're going to be like, what are you doing online? So like, um, and, and, you know, that's in Balmic of a very good sort of workplace culture where our upper managers don't like us working mm. ridiculous hours and burning ourselves out, which is excellent and absolutely the opposite of what this seems to be the case here where Zara mm. was talking about fucking having rats in her office while she was working <laughs> like weekend shifts and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, Honestly, there's so much to unpack in this chapter that I don't even know where to begin. She talks about workplace bullying. She talks about leaving because of workplace bullying, which is something like I think Mm. a lot of us have experienced personally. And Mm. I think in more recent times, I've become much more disillusioned with the complaints mechanism that's in place at various workplaces because it does seem as if like bullying is just something that we do kind of have to accept and no amount of, um, you know, workplace investigations and work safe um uh pin notices or whatever it is it it just seems to not change and like because I've been on the end of having to do a complaint like I've been a complainant and now I've seen other complainants get completely burnt by the system Mm. because it's back to what you were saying before which is it puts it on that individual and it's not like I think there's a point in this chapter where she says that HR only exists to support the company's needs, and it's like, uh, yeah, duh. HR mm-hmm. are like the biggest CUNTs ever. <laughs> <laughs> they, um, I just don't, I don't even know. Like, yeah, they're there to provide for the company, and they're such, mm. it's such an awkward divi- division because like you're meant to take your complaints to them, but like they're if they're doing an internal investigation, obviously they're not going to be in your favour, especially if you're going to make a fucking work cover claim against them. Yeah, I think the whole concept of HR to me is like one of the biggest hoaxes of capitalism, right? Like (laughs) (laughs) that that's that's my personal view. Um I, you know, I was brought up in like a very pro-union household. So whenever I've had issues with my workplace, I've gone running to the union and um, by and large, I've had positive experiences from doing that. So that would be my recommendation to people having issues in their workplace. Go to your union before you go to HR. But I think that, and you would get this too, which is like, 
we don't make complaints lightly. We love our jobs and that's almost mm. kind of the reason why we make complaints or other people that I know have made complaints because they love their jobs so much but they don't want to put up with the health trauma of having like day-to-day. And, you know, when it was happening to me by a manager, I literally felt anxiety and I felt like I was shaking every time she was around me because she was like physically really intimidating. And then it's, you know, all the surrounding circumstances. And this is the other thing that's difficult about pinning a complaint. Singular events, and I know that the meaning of bullying under the relevant legislation um, talks about a series of, of conduct. It's not just one thing. Mm-hmm. But when I, like, distilled the bullying behaviour, it just seemed so insignificant. And I was like, it's mm-hmm. not even worth pursuing. And then you just question yourself, like, am I just weak? Is And mm-hmm. it's just this whole process of, yeah, it's just really hard to make a complaint. And then you pluck up the courage to do it. And now I've seen, like, in my instance, nothing happened. And in another instance, mm-hmm. I've seen literally shits hit the fan and the person's had to be moved on so they make it the problem of the complainant Mm -hmm. rather than the actual like oh my god you know we've had a series of people leaving this organization why don't we actually look at the conduct of the person in question and yeah which goes back to your point hr pointless (laughs) (laughs) after real estate agents right yes after real estate agents (laughs) Um, I really loved this chapter too, by the way. And um, I think the reason why I really loved it, aside from the points that you've already touched on, um, is this whole idea that women, especially in their 20s, um, are inclined to make their careers their everything. Oh, my God. I was going to move on to that because there was a quote. I bet it's you on page 93. Quote. Yes, that's the yeah. quote I've too. <laughs> Go for can it. You, can you read it out for us? Sure. Um, so it says here, the more we assume we are our work and our work is us and the more we encourage a dialogue that says our careers are our currency, the more young people will find themselves trapped in a workplace that is actively doing harm. For who are they if not for the job title next to their name? I work, therefore I am. I am, therefore I work. And I absolutely agree with that because the next passage on um, the quote that you've just said on 93 talks about um, this is where people get stuck in jobs that ostensibly fit their passions or are cool or in some way should be fulfilling but are actually toxic because (laughs) of cultures of overwork, undercompensation or just shitty and inexperienced management. How many times can you say you've ticked all of those boxes (laughs) in a workplace? I'm not going to name names, but yeah. (laughs) And I think the Um, problem with both of our experiences is that we've both been so passionate in those particular roles where it's been afflicted by the cultures of overwork or undercompensation, especially for you in the community sector, mm -hmm. and um or just shitty and inexperienced management, which is for me in in my sector mm-hmm. um, previously. And so, so yeah, we've all sort of been there where we've had one of one of those three things that's sort of stood in our way of being able to just do the fucking job. Mm. Like <laughs> we just want to do our jobs and not have these stupid things get in the way of us actually being able to do it. And I think that's why it's been so hard to break up from those jobs. Because, like, for, uh, for both of us, I think we've loved our clients. Like, mm-hmm. that's just been something that's just I miss. And it's um, I get angry when I think that it is something that has absolutely nothing to do with the people that we're helping. That is the reason why we leave and aren't able to sort of what we want in, in those particular organisations or, or workplaces. You know what's really brought it home for me, and I think for you as well, is when those sort of surrounding circumstances actually impede your own health. Like, so for both of us, um, we both literally were at a point where, you know, our mental health and our physical health was actually being compromised by how toxic the workplaces we were in. Um And that's kind of where I draw a line, you know. I'm like, for me, like, my priority is doing work I'm passionate about. But if the surrounding circumstances are such that 
I actually can't function mentally or physically. Like when I went to the hospital, for example, then that's my line. And no matter how passionate I am about the work, I'm not going to compromise on my health for any job. I actually think though, and in this book, because they were only 22, 23 when they were um, in these particular positions, they started their careers at 21 in this organisation. I actually think we wouldn't have if we were 21. Like, I think we would have still been so um, naive and young mm. and really bored to this thing here, which is, um, I've just got it highlighted. It says, we've been trained to think of our lives as leading to this meaningful work. So it's very difficult to distance ourselves from the job once we achieve it. Mm. I think especially like what you said about law students, it is like impossible to get a law job now. And so if you can tick the boxes of getting a law job in doing something that you're passionate about, I think if you look at 21-year-old us, we would have both still been busting a gut. And the reason I say this is because I'm, I'm now in a position at work where mm. I do work with younger um, lawyers and I see them working so freaking hard because, and I remember it, I was there mm. when you're trying to make a name for yourself and trying to establish a reputation. Um, I remember in my first year of um, practice, I had the most horrible bronchitis and this would never happen in a COVID world, but I literally dragged my like broken lungs to work for two weeks to work on a, on a, something that is now like insignificant. And I remember getting told off because mm. I was like at work and I was like, no, I must sacrifice myself for this job. And like, I'm 28 now, so I wouldn't be doing that. I've also suffered from a, a number of health issues across the years, which again has shaped and formed my reasoning now, but because I see junior practitioners doing mm. it and I don't begrudge them and I don't judge them for it no. either because you have to almost. Like, again, I wonder how much of that is our responsibility. Like, we've opened, you know, we've kind of paved the way for them to do that. And I know law in particular is very guilty of inflicting um, our expectations and we went through it this way, therefore you must, which is something I'm, I'm actively, like, fighting against mm. but it's really hard and quite deeply entrenched as um toxicity that really I it shocks me to the core when I hear about it no I agree it makes me so angry to sort of see these really systemic and structural barriers like really entrench these really unhealthy workplaces and workplace behaviors but I'm kind of really grateful for the fact that we did sort of have the health crises we both had because I agree with you. In the absence of me being hospitalised, I would still be working like the way I was working. It literally took for me to be like immobilised <laughs> for a week and not be able to like, you know, eat or go to the toilet um, or just like survive like and like, you know, experience like basic day-to-day -day activities that's what made me realize that actually my job is not my everything. And even if I like collapse and die of a heart attack tomorrow, the world will keep spinning and like my workplace will keep functioning. Like I'm not the be all and end all of this workplace. It's kind of almost a really arrogant sort of self-perception to have that, you know, you do need to kind of work that hard and work that long and that without you doing those things, the work won't get done. Yeah, I mean, recently, like this year, actually, I took a week off work because I was um, getting very unwell and I was, had to start on this medication that really fucked me up. But I was so anxious about what that would mean and how my peers would judge me and, um, you know, oh, my God, I'm taking a whole week off work. I like, think of all the deadlines and all the court and I was supposed to have, like, I was supposed to be instructing in this particular thing, blah, blah, blah everything got handled. Like, honestly, mm. it makes zero difference. It's a bit more work for your colleagues because I've now been on the other end of it where I've had, um, and it, it just, it's natural, it happens. People get sick. And so I've been on the other end. I'm like, oh, yeah, whatever. Happy mm -hmm. to chip in. Like, I don't begrudge them for being sick. Like, it's just ludicrous the, the lies you tell yourself mm. when you are in that situation. And, I, you know, when I was um, much sicker in 2017, like, 
those were the things I was saying to myself too. I was acting as if like it was the end of the world to not be able to go to work. But the reality is you're replaceable and you're very disposable. That's just what capitalism is. <laughs> and um, the sooner you accept it, the better. But um, having said all of that, though, again, I don't begrudge junior practitioners for doing what they do because they need to and they think they need to. But I think mm. now that we're a bit more experienced and a bit more senior, I see my role as like like for one I if I'm working on a matter with someone um, who's more junior than me I won't log off until they're done because if they need Mm. my support on a task that I've given them I want to be around and give them that support Mm. um and I I just hate the idea of some junior person like literally just eating their insides because they don't know what they're doing they don't know who to ask for help like I'm not for that and Mm. so that's an ethos that I've taken into sort of the way that I like mentor and Um, supervise more junior people. Speaking about health and work um, to the next part of the book, um, which is titled Mind and Body, which is sort of centred around like the various like health struggles we experience in our 20s. Um, And for me, this part was like the most difficult in terms of selecting a chapter to focus on. Um, mainly because I identified with so many of the experiences spoken about, um, especially by Zara, because we actually share a lot of the same health struggles. Um, But the chapter that I ultimately settled on was the one that's titled The Space Between My Body, My Fertility and My Future. Um, And in that chapter, Zara speaks about um, a chronic health condition that she suffers from called endometriosis and the implications that has for her fertility. Um, And the reason that I really wanted to speak about this chapter was because of my own experience with chronic illness. So um, I've been diagnosed, as you know, Anna, um, with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, And I've also had what's called pelvic inflammatory disease. And both those conditions sort of in tandem um, can have significant repercussions for your fertility. Um, And two things that I think Zara touched on that I've had real lived experience of is sort of one, the relationship between my chronic health conditions and how they've been sort of addressed or not addressed by medicine and medical professionals and sort of also just like broader community sentiment around those conditions. Um, So at the beginning of the chapter, Zara talks about an appointment that she has with her gynecologist um, and it's right in the aftermath of the surgery that she's had for her endometriosis. And she asks a question about sort of her fertility and sort of, you know, the impact of that condition and that surgery on her fertility. And the gynecologist is quite sort of dismissive um, of the Mm. question. And I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something to the effect of, oh, that's something that we can worry about in the future. Like, that's not something we need to worry about now. Um, And that so, like, replicated my own experiences with a whole host of medical professionals in both my teens and my early to mid-20s when it came to my PCOS and my PID. Um, there was this real sense of, listen, it's not a problem until it is a problem, which is a really sort of reactive approach to, you know, sort of someone's health. Um, And it's sort of in stark contrast to my more recent experiences with medical professionals where I went to see um, our treating doctor um, who actually sort of was thinking one step ahead of me and actually said to me, listen, um, have you thought about seeing a fertility specialist so that you can talk through your various fertility options? Um, And she acknowledged the fact that, you know, it's not something that I want to do now or anytime soon, but just sort of that forward planning and sort of not waiting until it's potentially too late to do something. Um, So, yeah, so that's kind of what really appealed to me about that chapter. I think the thing about fertility is it's been such a taboo subject like I think Zara was the one who said that you know in your 20s it is such a taboo because everyone's so like what's accepted I guess in our friendship group anyway is that no one's really focused on having a family or having children in their 20s um it's all about career and stuff and so as a result our treating practitioners don't think about the future and don't think about that 
And now we're at a stage that we're in either our late 20s or early 30s and Mm. fertility is front of mind because, um, you know, people are popping up babies left, right and centre. Like I saw two (laughs) baby notifications before I um, started this chat with you. And Mm. so it is becoming something that we're talking a lot more about and it's, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it's outrageous that it's so reactive um, when mm. family planning should be something that is planned, like well ahead of it actually happening. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And um, to be honest, I mean, I'm lucky um, with the friendship circles that I have in the sense that people often validate my fears and insecurities around, you know, potentially not being able to fall pregnant or falling pregnant and not being able to carry a pregnancy to full term. But a lot of people out there don't have those same support networks. Um, and I have spoken to other friends of mine who either do have PCOS and or endometriosis and often sort of being brushed away when they raise their own fears and insecurities. Like people will, and they're well-intentioned people, mind you, you know, but they'll say things like, oh, listen, you know, um, don't worry about that kind of until you need to worry about it, like the gynecologist. Or they'll start coming up with what they think are solutions like, oh, you could adopt or foster or freeze your eggs. Um, And often when you're kind of having those really vulnerable conversations with people around you, you don't want those answers because when you're suffering from a condition like this, you spend like hours in a day doing all this research. You know what your options are. What you really want in that moment is just to sort of be heard and seen and validated about what you're feeling and thinking. And that's what I really liked about the chapter. Um, There's a particular quote, actually, I'll see if I can find it, where um, she talks about sort of exactly how she wants people to approach this with friends who or family members they have that might have one or more of these conditions. Um, She says, all I want is for someone to tell me my confusion is warranted, my forward thinking legitimate, that even though things may work out in exactly the way they are meant to, that it's okay to be riddled with worry now, that as a young woman not yet ready to have a child, I am allowed to be vocal about the fear of a day I may be ready, but my body decides I am not. Yeah, I cannot agree with that more. I can't believe that that is the way we talk about fertility. Like, Mm. um, because when I I spoke to, because we're going to um, a fertility specialist together, um, and when I told my mum that I was going um, along with you to do that, she was just like, oh, don't worry about it. Like, you know, I had a kid when I was 37. And Mm. I was like, yeah, but like, you know, I think that's very dismissive and I get what they're trying to do. It's kind of the same way that when they're like, just think positive, like people don't want to be confronted with the awkward thoughts of having and an awkward conversation really of having Mm. to delve into issues about women's fertility. And again, it's such a taboo still. I don't even think we talk about it that much. Um, This is a bit of a side note, but I don't know if you saw this week, Chrissy Teigen suffered the loss of, um, her child and I was literally um, just thinking that <laughs> and because her baby was um I think it was six months old like uh, it four wasn't months. oh four months mm-hmm. um and she posted this very raw image and I think she has done wonders for the baby loss like community and the fertility community because she's openly talked about her um fertility struggles for years she suffered mm-hmm. numerous miscarriages before she had her two children and suffered many um before having this baby as well and it's I've seen like something like five or ten different um news articles of Mm. women sharing their experiences again and it kind of brought home to me I've just kind of forgotten how much a taboo um pregnancy loss and fertility is because um and I think someone one of the authors said this and you know a lot of other people have said this too but there's a sense of failure because you're kind of in a patriarchal society with biology as such. We're taught that women's bodies are vessels and that their sole purpose really is to um, grow a baby and to hold it and to feed it and nourish it and then to give birth to life. 
and that's a big responsibility but also like it's a huge thing to put on someone's body like if you go back to biology class and have a look at what women actually their body your body is actually physically capable of it blows your mind and I think for a lot of women when their bodies um you know for whatever reasons can't sustain life in that way it feels like such a physical failure Mm. um because of all that patriarchal societal messages that we've taught each other about pregnancy and about fertility yeah and you know I'm an out and proud feminist. Like I've never sort of subscribed to these like traditional notions of what it is to be a woman or to like enter into sort of traditional unions like marriage or having that like Mm -hmm. nuclear family. But even though I do sort of have those views on like an intellectual level, um, because like you said, at the end of the day, we are in a patriarchy and a woman's sense of worth is often tied to her fertility. Um, the fact that I know this is going to be harder for me does make me feel like a failure, that what is wrong with me and my body? Like, why can't I do this? Um, Especially for someone like me, like I'm very A-type, you know. I think if I work hard enough at something, then I should get the result that I want. Um, And that's not how fertility works. It's not a question of how sort of ambitious you are or how hard you work at it. Um, There is just a lot of luck involved. And there is a real sense of, you know, when it is sort of so dependent on luck, um, sort of just feeling really out of control in that situation and really powerless in that situation. Um, like, Isn't I don't even know if I want little, kids. <laughs> I know. And that's, the, and that's what Zara said. Like, she was saying that she doesn't, she's confused as it is. Like, she's confused after the diagnosis of endo and the fact that the doctor didn't want to even go near the topic of fertility was the thing that just compounded that confusion because mm. it's like, am I not meant to be thinking about this even mm. though objectively looking I've got a condition that has the ability to affect my fertility. And so I just felt so much for her and for people who are suffering from that. And, you know, a lot of people don't even know if they're suffering from it. Like mm. I, I'm one of those people that's willingly put my head in the sand because mm. – it's confronting and it's scary to to hear that your body, like you said, is not doing what um, society is telling us that it's meant to be set up to do. Mm. This is a bit of a segue, but a book that we were both like obsessed with reading was um, Olive by, um, what was her name? Was it Emma, Emma Gannon? Gannon. Yeah. Emma Gannon. Mm. And one of the characters in that book um really struggles with fertility and I thought it was really useful I think like reading all these books at the same time and also like this um upcoming appointment as well sort of brought home those issues of fertility and actually actively thinking about Mm. the struggles and and how soul crushing it is if it's something you so desperately want but your body just cannot do it which Mm. is what this particular character Isla um suffers from and there's no you know, it doesn't tie up in a neat bow. Like you can see fertility for her is just this ongoing struggle of like desire and like it's all consuming almost, you know? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And, you know, part of the reason why I've scheduled this fertility specialist appointment this week is to reclaim some of that control and some of that power over the situation Um, that's not to say that, you know, it's going to be a solution to not being able to procreate, but um, I want to make sure that whatever ends up happening, it comes from a position of me being informed and sort of conscious of like the information and options out there. Um, So, yeah, I, I really love this chapter and yeah, I just, I think Speaking about it is the first step towards destigmatizing it and making sure that it isn't taboo anymore because it shouldn't be. And I think I was thinking how powerful it ha- is having someone as influential as Zara and Michelle talk openly about these things. There are so many other things mm-hmm. in the book, but this is one of the things, um, of the many things that really has lifted the that taboo, I think. Like the fact that we're openly talking about this and openly talking about vaginismus as well, which was the other chapter yeah. that I found really interesting to read, 
um, mm. from Zara's perspective because she's she said she's notoriously private and she mm. held on to this thing because in our society, like, sex is supposed to be this great thing and we're all meant to love it and enjoy it. And she was, like, holding on to this shame of, like, sex was not enjoyable for her and, if mm. anything, it seemed to have compounded the symptoms of her vaginismus. Mm. Um, and, again, body failing in a circumstance where it shouldn't, you know, society says that it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Um to sum up, like, what did you think of this book? So out of five, how would you <laughs> rate it? And and do you have any sort of any words that kind of spring out to you about this book? Um, I'm really inclined to give anything a five-star review. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm going to say four and a half. Um, I really did love this book. Um, and like I said, I think there's something in it for everyone. Um, and I think you can either relate to the themes in different chapters or variations of those themes. Um, and I think one of the other things that I discussed with you that I really liked was sort of the format, um, of the book. So the fact that it was divided into these distinct parts, so you can kind of go and pick and choose what you read, which is most relevant or interesting to you. Um, and the fact that like the chapters alternate between sort of, you know, these long form essays to like those email um, exchanges between Michelle and Zara to like these little fun to-do lists. Um, Yeah, I think it kept it fresh and interesting. So yeah, four and a half out of five for me. What about you? I think I'm inclined to give it a five only because it, initially I was like, oh, they're not even, they're only 25. So they've only lived half of their 20. So like, what would they know? But um, I was actually very, very surprised to see sort of the breadth of experience that they covered, even though they're both two cisgendered white women Mm. um, from presumably middle-class backgrounds. Um, Mm. You know, I was really surprised to see, yeah, the topics that we've discussed, especially with Zara, like she was, I think because Michelle is quite open about her experiences with mental health and stuff, although she does have a particularly... Um, harrowing chapter towards the end Mm. Um, but I think with Zara's stuff like she's brought awareness to issues that in our 20s are quite taboo and Mm. um, not really widely spoken about so I thought that was like really incredible seeing someone who is actually so influential um, Mm. giving 20 somethings and beyond a voice and I think my word to encapsulate this book was that you feel seen and you mm. feel heard. And I think mm. um, exactly what you were saying, which is there's so much of the experience that, like, I'm not anything like those two girls, but I felt like I could relate to so many of the experiences that they've gone through. For some 25-year-olds, they've gone through a lot of shit. Yeah, no, agreed. I sort of had the same reservations you did when I found out they were writing a memoir. I'm like, you're 25. Like, what has actually happened in your life that's worth writing a memoir about? Um, So I take my words back. I agree. I was so impressed by sort of just the range of topics and like the experiences. And yeah, like I said, I I think anyone can find something in this book that will resonate and um, impact them for the better. I think where they, you know, where they lacked the experience and whatever they were talking about, they did draw on specific experts. Like I did mm. just quickly see there's some psychologists cited in it. There's um, Jamila Rizvi who, you know, has had a lot of experience in the business world and corporate and public service as well. And mm. so that kind of adds that credibility and integrity to the text and, and to the contention of what they're trying to put forward as well. Mm. Um, so it wasn't just a sloppy read and it really wasn't just a self-indulgent 20-something memoir, which um, I didn't think they would write something like that, but there are definitely things out there that um, do resemble that. And I honestly, if I had to write something, it would be a self-indulgent, you know, memoir because, you know, I don't have anything to say really. But, yeah, I thought theirs was just incredible and I haven't devoured a book so quickly. Like I, I was counting down the days till September 1 or whenever it was and I, I had two copies of the book because like <laughs> I ordered one. I pre-ordered one of Booktopia um, and because OzPost is like oh, easy yeah. now. Yeah. Um, didn't get it till like three weeks later. So um, 
supported my independent bookstore instead and <laughs> was so happy for that. Um, so we hope you've enjoyed our inaugural episode of Book Cult. Um, it's, <laughs> I don't know, kind of the book bites um, sort of edition of books that we've read and enjoyed. I mean, there's been a few people that made comments that we read a lot and I think during ISO we certainly have but there's been so much learning out of the books that we've read. So mm. um, we are really keen to sort of share those thoughts and to kind of develop a bit of a virtual book club community um, now that, you know, we're still in lockdown and not able to readily get out and about. So we hope to see you next time. <laughs>